Um, however, I want to go back to the idea of Al-Alameen again. Al-Alameen is one of these concepts, Rabb Al-Alameen, one of these concepts which on the face of it is easily understood, but to fully absorb it is both to fully absorb it intellectually and spiritually as well is far from an easy or straightforward matter. If truly understood, if truly absorbed, it transforms your very existence. It transforms your life. We said that Al-Alam, the singular of Al-Alamin, Alamin being the singular being alam, the plural being alamin. And we said that, to, to, in the, to use the Arabic terminology again, تطلق على كل جملة متميزة أو متميزة لأفرادها صفات تقربها من العاقل الذي جمعت جمع. It is said about every unit Mutamayiza, unique in its characteristics, unique in itself. Liafradiha sifatun tukarribuha mina laqili lazi jamaat jamaah. For the units of this unit, the components of this unit are qualities which are similar. To the aqil, the aqil is the conscious, the conscious, which brings it together, which brings all these separate units together. And we said that the aqil, that conscious, if you will, conscious element, conscious force, conscious factor, which brings these separate, separate components together into a singular unit وَإِن لَمْ تَكُنْ مِنْهِ وَإِن لَمْ تَكُنْ مِنْهِ that conscious component does not become part of the unit that it creates let's assume that we are going to create a unit of الرحمه the merciful ones Let's just assume that that is the unit that we are creating. The merciful ones. The characteristics of mercy is what is going to bring all these separate components together into a singular unit. But mercy itself is not embodied by the unit. In other words, mercy brings the unit together, but it is not limited by the unit. You follow? You cannot say the only mercy that exists is in this unit. That's why we say, "Fallah Rabbul Alamin." When we say "Rabbul Alamin," litamayuzhi wataqarubhi min al-kul. So Allah brings these units together, but yet. 
This is the taqarrub part. This is where Allah is near and similar to all the various all the, 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 the various components of the unit that Allah formed. At the same time, Allah is mutamayyiz, means unique. In that Allah is not, does not become a part of the units which Allah forms. So if you take, we say alam, as we said, is the, 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 wor- the literally translated world, but we say alam because it's a, it's a one unit. Alamin, all the units. So you have various components, separate components. These components come together in a unit. So let's say human beings. The, the, the components of human beings are the individuals. But the individuals come together in a single unit, and that's humankind. All these units are then brought together by something that provides them with a common element, a commonality but yet does not become a part of them. And the notion then that that is Allah should render something to you which is quite fascinating. It is as if Allah is the glue that holds the various desperate parts, the various desperate units, together but the source of the of the glue itself does not combine so here you have like a glue tube a tube of glue that comes and glues something into existence together but it itself remains separate can you say that a part of the unifying element Allah in this case does a part of it combine, the part of it go into bringing these desperate units together? Sure. Parts of it does go into bringing these desperate units together. But can you say that it itself becomes a component of the unity that's created? No. It remains separate and apart from it. Remember I told you alama means indicator. Alama means indicator. Why do we call the unit that forms alam? We call it alam because this unit is an indicator as to the individual components, the unity behind the individual components. Alama means a sign, an indication. Alam those that are indicated, the unit which is indicated. Alameen, the indicated, and the indicators. Now, here, you enter into a very interesting point. The indicators as to Allah. But yet, the indicated in the sense that the existence of unity tells us something about the existence of the unity of these of, of all these various units 
tells us something about all the various components that go into this unity. What should strike you at this point, well, if Allah is Rabb al-Alameen, what happens then, just simply as a linguistic analysis, is the implication then that if Allah does not provide the glue for these components, what happens if Allah does not provide the unifying element for these various components? Well, there would be no longer alameen. Can you say there would be separate alams, each alam living in its own, but no coherence, no unity? That in itself is doubtful, because it is doubtful that a alam can form because the notion of unity itself has been negated. The idea that anything can actually come together itself has been negated. So then what happens? Complete individual isolation. So what happens? Complete, absolute disintegration. So that, for example, each individual, if we take human beings, we take each individual, each individual would now develop into a complete, unique set of is. So one individual, for example, might have three brains. Another individual might have 200 eyes. Another individual might have 20 legs. Another individual might have, might be as tall as a mountain. Another as small as an ant. There is no no, no longer the component of unity which holds this, these components together. There is no reason why they should not just spread out in, 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 in ultimate richness and diversity. But then, if the richness and diversity is unabounded by anything, and if you even think of natural selection theory, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really work because there are all types of variations that can survive. That can survive, in, in perfect sense, that can survive. But while the world gives us much diversity, but it also limits the diversity, and it sure isn't some process of natural selection of the fittest that limits that diversity. Um, because as the theory itself concedes, there are all types of useless manifestations of just beauty, for the sake of beauty that doesn't aid in survival, but yet it survives and it continues for a very long time. Anyway, now, if everything becomes isolated, if you carry this logic to its ultimate, to its furthest extent, then existence as we know existence to be is no longer. So, if you take this table, there is something that allows the various components that go into making this table to, be, to hold on together, to stay together. Once you negate the idea 
of the ability of things to of light, nature, to attract and and stay together, then everything disintegrates into nothingness. Note that in the Quran class we talked about two islands. Two islands. Alam al Ghaib and Alam al Shahada. Alam al Ghaib, the Alam of the unseen, unknown. Alam al Shahada is the Alam of the seen and the known. Alam al Shahada is what we live in. While Alam al Ghaib is what we do not, we might or might not live in, but we really never know in, in the sense that our perceptions do not necessarily absorb it. Our perceptions, our, our ability to perceive does not necessarily is, is able to, 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 to hold it. Remember in the Quran class, we talked about Alam al-Ghaib, the, the world of the unseen. While Alam al-Shahada, the world of the seen. But the description for the world of the seen, we said what is interesting about it is that it does not have an independent name that connotes its existence. Other than it is seen. What does that mean? It means that when we, when we say the world of the seen, we don't say, when we say Allah, we don't, Allah is a proper name in itself, not dependent on how Allah is perceived. But when we say the world of the seen, there is no proper name, independent proper name that connotes it. It is simply the world of the seen, meaning it is the world of the perceived, as if the existence of this world depends on our perception. As if the existence of those worlds depends on the fact that it is mashhud. وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودٍ قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ الْأُخْدُودِ This idea of a shahid and the mashhud in the Quran is fascinating, generally. In other words, that world that is seen as a mashhud. Mashhud means to seen. Does the mashhud, the seen, exist beyond the fact that it is seen? Well, the Quran tells you, يُؤْمُنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ يُؤْمُنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ and what? وَالشَّهَادَةِ يُؤْمُنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ وَالشَّهَادَةِ they believe in the ghaib and they believe in shahada. And, okay, you believe in the ghaib because you don't see it. So you understand that. I have to believe in what I don't see. But I have to believe in the scene? At what point must I make that transition in which I believe in the scene? And why? In what sense do you have to believe in the scene. And here, interestingly, it puts the ghaib before the shahada. Yumnuna bil ghaib 
Okay, I understand that. And it's as if it's surprising you. And I'll tell you what. Of course, that's They believe. It's a matter of faith for them. That they believe in the ghaib, in the world. Alam al ghaib, in the alam that is unseen. Wa alam al shahada. How can you believe in alam al shahada? What is that to believe in alam al shahada? This is not talk about shahada, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Because shahada, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, is not an issue of iman, it's an issue of utterance. You say, yantukuna bi shahada. You can't say, yu'minuna bi shahada. Right? You can believe in what the shahada says, but you can't believe in the expression, it's just the utterance. You can express the expression, but you don't believe the expression. Okay, so how is it then that you are asked to believe in the scene? And here, as we made in, our, in the Quran class, and I have no idea whether it got through or not got through, as most of the time I don't know, but the significant point that you are confronted with because the shahada itself depends on what? On shahid and mashhud. Shahid means the seer and mashhud the seen. Well, if it depends on shahid and mashhud, the seer and the seen, does it have any objective reality in itself? If that is all there is, then no, it doesn't. In that case, if it doesn't, then what you are seeing is something that you construct. And what is seen is something that you construct as well. Then the shahid is constructed and the mashhud is constructed. And as we go on, in, inshallah, in further halakhas, I, I will go back to this idea showing you various Quranic verses that address this same issue. If that is case, in the case, the case, then of course you must believe in what is being seen because it is not that you believe in the objectivity of what is being seen, mawdu'iyat al-ru'ya, as they used to call it, or as they call it, but what you are believing in is the meaning that you give what is being seen. This is all in the form of, when we say ayat, the three are the ayat of God, of Allah, the, the signs of Allah. The, 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 the uh, grass, the ayat of Allah, the signs of Allah. The uh, naum, sleep, is ayat of Allah. Food, ayat of Allah. Consequently, you are no longer looking at sleep what does the Quran tell you? It tells you what is sleep. It says sleep is a sign of God. Isubat means a point of utter immobility. And even sometimes the Quran talks about it as a form of death. That is a reconstruction of the reality of sleep. If it even has a reality. Because when the Quran comes it says, it says stay up two thirds of the night or more. Here is the negation of sleep, and in fact, commends the night, 
at, at a moment of particular ability to perceive or perception, then sleep itself can be seen as a mundane act, which you don't, it's, it's the time where I go to bed, I lay on a sheet of paper on certain material made of wire, plus this and that and that, and then under me is a round piece of cloth. Inside that piece of cloth is a sponge material, which is, and then I lay, I, I, I put myself in a certain format. I close my eyes and I don't know what happens. I mean, you could describe sleep in that fashion, where it has no meaning. But when you say sleep, it's the time I rest. You are constructing the reality of sleep. If you say sleep is my torment, you've constructed the reality of sleep. If you say sleep is the time, uh, when you say I'm, I will, you mean there is no embarrassment in religion. I say la haya afidin. Well, we say we've even constructed this. We say I will. Did you sleep with him or did you sleep with her? What does that mean? Do we mean did you go and sleep next to each other and? Uh, and uh, read uh, comic magazines before you do so? No, it means have you had sexual relations? That is a reconstruction of the reality of sleep. Here sleep is reconstructed to be something completely different. Now if you are reconstructing sleep to become a sign of God, and even an experience, a minor experience of death, in order to remember God, that is something that needs belief. You must believe in that. You see? Then, يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ وَيُؤْمِنُونَ بِالشَّهَادَةِ makes perfect sense now. Because now, it is not simply that you are absorbing something that already is there. But you are actively constructing what it is. And then you are believing in what it is. You then reconstruct yourself as well. Who are you? You know the, the, the hadith attributed to the Prophet, who knows himself, knows his God? There is no objective sense. I mean, you could study your genes, fine. But your, your sense of who you are is who you believe you are. And who you construct yourself to be. And if you believe yourself to be the manifestation of God, then you know yourself, you know your God. But it requires belief. Why does it require belief? Because we often disbelieve in ourselves. I mean, we will often say, although we want to believe, but we cannot truly believe that we are an ayah of God, or we are truly a loan from God. To look at your body, for example, you could say easily, very easily, my body is a, a loan from God. But this construction of reality is very contra to another construction of, of reality. This other construction of reality could be my body is is something that I really don't know very well and I really don't care to know very well. It's sort of like it's, it's there. Or my body is 
fine as long as it doesn't cause me pain. Or another construction of reality. Oh, I love my body. You've met people like that. Or my body is a form of attraction. It's one of the means that I use to get things I want. Like my brain or like anything else. Like my car. Like my... Whatever it is. My, I use this body as simply means to get things. Or my body is an indicator, a sign of my self-worth. And so if I present it in a certain way and people like it, that means I'm worth something. Or my body is a sign of my strength and power. So if I pump it up and I look muscular, that means I have a lot of power. Or my body is where I state my defiance to others. Like my body is a page of paper where I write my defiance. So what do you do in that case? You get a bell's way, you put earrings in the middle of your forehead or in, you know, in, in whatever. In other words, this is the page where you write. This is, this is where you're expressing. You know, express yourself, Madonna type of thing. I mean, it's express yourself, but it's all physical. Her body is a page to her. You could also look at your body and say, my body is a sign of my attachment to God. Because it is a sign of God having a personal relationship with, with me, where God gives me a loan, and I preserve it, take care of it, and then re- until it's done. So sort of your body then becomes a completely different dynamic. Your body becomes a symbol of your special relationship with God. But in every single one of these constructed realities, you need what? You need belief. Belief. Madonna tries to convince me, tries to convince me to use my body to express myself. She wants me to believe that my body is a method to express myself. Some other guy, that guy that used to be on Saturday Night Live and say, pump you up, remember that? He's trying to convince me to use my body as a sign of my force, my power. Pump yourself. So on and so forth. So then, you believe in the ghaib, in the unseen, and you also believe in the seen. And the seen must be believed in as much as the unseen, in the sense that you must believe in the interpretation you give to what is being seen. I know this material conceptually is not easy, but you you must endure through it. If you want the fatha is is is, and you will see those of you, inshallah, will persevere on this. If we if we do this for years, you will come back one day to to this and listen to it, and it will seem to you to you so superficial. In other words, you can spend years pondering the implications of the Fatha and come back to something like this and say, my God, this is so simple. In the same way that you open up your, your, your books from, I don't know, uh, high school or somewhere and say, this was challenging at, at one time. But for now, you must understand the full implications, or at least not the full, but at, at this level, the various implications of the terminology that we use. Because we use a lot of terms. 
but we never really think about what these terms connote. The belief itself, in the interpret, in belief in terms of how to construct reality, will come itself from God's communication with you as to how you must construct reality. I mean, the idea of your body being God's loan to you, for example, is a belief. But where do you get this belief from? From It's because God told you to believe that. But if you believe it, then you no longer, if you truly believe it, then you no longer see your body in the same fashion. And that is why, for example, when, when the, the famous story of Al-Halaj, when Al-Halaj is being tortured, and they're severing parts of his body, and he's screaming, saying what? No, he's, he initially says, I, I am the truth, and then he's being tortured. And he is screaming out as he's tortured, give me more. I love you, give me more. I love you, give me more. He has a constructed reality, system of belief about his body that comes from his theology, that comes from how he understands God telling him or what he understands God to tell him about, to tell him about his body. And eventually you will see that we reach the point where Islam and submission to be a Muslim is to be what? To have to be Muslim and to be what? To have what? Islam and to have what? Iman, right? Now isn't that interesting? Because Islam is to submit fully. Well, it could have a legal sense. That means I obey the law. But is that really submission? I mean, if I, if I get you to obey the law, but I don't get you to see the law see things the way the law wants you to see things. Are you really submitting? If you, if I, for example, get you not to kill your neighbor because you're afraid of going to prison, but to fantasize about killing your neighbor every single night, you're obeying the law, but are you submitting to the law? You're rebelling. And your rebellion is internal. Entirely legal, but internal. But Islam comes and says, I require submission. Submission. Then we're not talking about obeying the laws. We're talking about that your, your very psychology itself submits. Then submits to what? And they tell you submits to Iman, to belief. Okay, so what? Believe in what? What is it I'm supposed to believe? And then you discover that you believe in the sense that your whole perception of life, an approach to life, what in modern discourse we call your values, to make it easy for you, your value system. But values is a very vague term. But your values become entirely Islamic. Is this possible? Well, of course it's possible. Why is it possible? Because if you look at us here in, in American society, we have values all the time that connote a different system of belief. A be belief comes from a certain acculturation that we went through Growing up here or spending a large number of years, a certain number of, a lot of years here. When we, for example, think that someone off the street does not have a right to walk in and help themselves to your fridge, it's an acculturation. It's a set of values that come from the most, when we assume, for example, that no one should tell us whether we can wear hijab or not wear hijab. 
It's an acculturation. It's a set of values that we reflect. There is nothing natural about them. They are accultured values. They come because we got used to thinking a certain way. When we believe that if we study well or if we drive well, we are entitled to a driver's license. It's an acculturation. When we drive down the road and we expect that a police car should not pull you over and then shoot you in the head simply because the police officer felt like it, it's an acculturation. You can imagine in a different setting, it would be entirely expected. Yeah, a police officer pulls you, probably will shoot you in the head. Okay, fine. Just that's the way it is. It's an acculturation, in other words. Our values, are, our construction of reality, is always comes from somewhere. The question is, it could come from American society, could come from Egyptian society, could come from Indian society, or it could come from Islamic premises. But then the question is, so, okay, fine, so what's Islamic? And that's what the Quran is supposed to be a discourse on. But we start with the building blocks first. But the point for now, we take it step by step, the point for now is that there is a, 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 that the world of the seen and the world of the unseen. The world of the seen, Alam Shahada, has no independent existence beyond the fact that it is seen. No independent existence beyond the fact that it is seen because it, is not, it doesn't even have a proper name. It is simply the world of the seen. But then how about the world of the unseen? Well, it, it does exist beyond the fact that it's seen because it's unseen. And what, what effectively then what you are being told is the fact that you can see something or not see it has no relation to the truth of its existence. Now, if that strikes you, oh, but yeah, that, that's really the idea of God. The fact that you see something or not seeing, not see it, has no relation to the truth of its existence. Then you're right on the money. Because if you take the idea of God, then all of that will, will, would, would unfold before, of you, before your eyes. Because God, you must believe in God although you've never seen God. And the vast majority of us have never even felt God. There are some of us who might have had experiences where they say, I felt God. But the majority of us have neither felt God nor seen God. And the truth of the matter is that the vast majority of us, as we'll see in the, in, as we go on in the, in the further ayat, the vast majority of us don't even really believe in God other than the fact that we grew up through a certain acculturation telling us to believe in God. The vast majority of us never went through a process by which we adopt faith in God. But we get used to the idea of God. Grow into the idea of God. That doesn't mean we don't have belief. But it simply means that God is not a matter of faith as much as a matter of habit. Allah Adah. They used to call it, Fayakunullah Ada, a habit. Allah becomes a habit. 
not a belief. But then Islam comes and says, to have Iman, Allah must not be a habit. Allah must be a belief. And if you then want to believe in Allah, and I want to believe in something I have not seen, and I have not felt, then I must a priori adopt the premise that what I see is irrelevant to what, it ex- what exists. Now that's quite a premise. You see, if you say what I see is what exists, then you can't believe in God. There's no way. Unless you're one of those people who are not enough to say, I've seen God. But the Quran comes and tells you it's impossible for you to see God. God will only manifest God's self through something. Never manifest God's self directly. In other words, you always, you always, you're led to God through indicators. So if you accept the premise then, aha, then I, what I see is not the proof, I mean, what I see is not the proof of what exists, I can see it. In other words, the fact that I can see it, it doesn't mean that it really exists, but I can merely see it. So its existence depends on, that, on, on my perception of it. You come full circle, and wherever you go in the circle, by the way, philosophically, you will always end at the same point. That's what's, one, what's, what's quite you know, sparkling about this whole, this whole discourse, is that wherever you are, you always end up in the same point. The ghayb does have an existence that does not depend on perception. The shahada is dependent on perception. Alam al-ghayb wa alam al-shahada wa rabbul alameen Alternatively, you could even say Rabbul Alamain. Then, in that case, this Rabb is the Rabb, and remember, we, we said Rabb means the caretaker, the, the, the upbringer, the nourisher, the sustainer of the Alams. And we know from the Quran that there are two Alams, the Ghaib and Shashahada. Then, do these worlds have an existence separate from God, separate from Allah. Rabbul Alameen, it doesn't mean the, the king, it doesn't mean it sits. But in fact, the Alameen is entirely dependent on Allah for its existence, for its very existence. Then can we say, is there anything beyond Allah in any real sense? No. Is there anything real? If this is fully absorbed, then imagine the transformation that could happen in you. Imagine the transformation that could happen in you. If this is fully absorbed, then there is nothing. Right? What does the Quran tell you? Everything on it is, becomes extinct. And the only thing that remains, Fan becomes extinct in the sense that everything dissipates. But what remains, 
the face of your Rabb. Well, if everything dissipates and what remains is the face of your Rabb, doesn't this assume a priori that the face of your Rabb already exists there for it to remain? Do you see what I'm saying? How could something remain if it's not already there? If I say, if you keep drinking this from this glass, the only thing that remain, will remain are, uh, uh, is what? Um, huh? The glass. Well, a priori, I'm assuming the existence of the glass. So, when everything on it dissipates, the only thing that remains is Allah, then this a priori assumes that Allah is already there. So, everything behind everything, at the bottom of everything, is Allah. You see that Rabbil Alameen then becomes an enormous concept. An enormous idea in itself. Because no longer is it Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, oh thank you God for being so wonderful. But Alhamdulillahi Rabbul Alameen means I am bonded to you because there is nothing beyond you. That's it. Now imagine, imagine if you fully absorb this idea. Then you know what? Your bed is no longer a bed. Your house is no longer a house. Your books are no longer books. Your rug is no longer a rug. Your food is no longer food. Examples of that. I, I often, one of my sheikhs who would, who had me ser- serve him the same lunch for, for a very long time, in about a year or, or... Every day he eats cheese with pieces of tomatoes cut into them. And hard Egyptian bread, brown hard Egyptian bread. Every day he eats the same thing for lunch. Several times, my mother would cook something, so I go and take from the pot, and I serve it instead, because I felt sorry for this man. I put lintel, uh, full, uh, what's full, black beans, uh, ats, lintel, uh, some bamia that my mom, bamia is what, okra. Uh, you know, what amazed me was he never noticed. He would eat it, but never notice the change. Either that, or he would have no expression. Or wonder where I got this food from. Food altered its meaning to him. Food no longer became food. It became something completely different. When, if you read the, the obsession, the obsessiveness about books, for example. Books, in the eyes of some, I guess you can guess who these some are, are no longer words on pay on pieces of paper, thank you. Are no longer words on pieces of paper. Are in fact no longer avenues to knowledge. But they become an experience in reorientation of reality. They become something completely different than a book as is ident- as defined by other. So reconstruction of reality occurs all the time. And that is why, in, in legal cases, by the way, you, and in, in marital fights, why is it that you can have 
two very nice people, two very honest people, two very good people, but yet when they argue about something, they can never agree on the facts. They can never agree on simply what happened. Each of them is angry. Why is each of them angry? Because they think that the other person is BSing them. But each of them is being entirely honest and entirely sincere. Neither of them is lying, and neither of them is BSing. What they don't realize is, is in fact, what happened is what they perceive to have happened. Unless they have a common enough psychology, disciplined by the discipline of piety, then and you can only experience it, you cannot be told, where they in fact will start seeing things pretty much the same way, not because they're happening the same way, but because they rise from the same premises of piety, which transforms everything very much the same. And that's why in, 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 you'll find in, in many mosque settings in the United States, Muslims fighting all the time. And most of the time they're fighting over the facts. Who did what and who said what. But in different, different settings, you will find people tortured to death and not utter one word to hurt another. This is not just good manners or loyalty. It is that there are certain contexts which promotes this notion of reorientation of reality through piety, taqwa, which, and we'll get to taqwa when, when, when we finish Fatha and, and, and several down the line in several surahs. But this element of taqwa reorients reality, reorients reality in, in a certain fashion, which does not make it identical, never, but it makes it more compatible with each other. And that is again why when you find two married couples that are particularly pious, their fights are not that many. And their arguments are not that many. They don't seem to come to clash about so many things. And here piety is not piety in the sense that oh, both of them you know, carry beads and are very nice, kind people. Piety in the sense both of them are actively engaged in this process of redefining reality in the sense of the values given to them by Allah. You can see this, by the way, also in courts, where you have two people. I mean, it's amazing. It's, 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 it deserves true reflection. The fact that honest, sincere people never agree on what happened. Never agree. But you said, but I said, no, you said this first. I didn't say this until you said, but no, no, you're changing the facts. So they, they honestly, sincerely believe that. Now, whether in fact someone said something and then someone said something else. Now how about if they listen to it on tape? You know what? Most times, even if you tape them and they listen to it on tape, it still won't end the, 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 the argument. And it won't end the argument simply because the reality now is being constructed according to tonality, tonality, demeanor. Yes, but when you said this, you looked upset, you looked mean, but when you said so on and so forth. All right. So, you see now from this word simply, Rabbil Alameen, you get into what alam? You get into alam al-shahada, alam al-ghaib, then you get into the dependency of the alam on Allah, on the Rabb, and the dependency gets you into what form of dependency? 
And yet all of this held together by Allah, while Allah never becomes a part of it absolutely, but remains independent from it. Because remember, we said that تمايزه. تمايزه meaning that he remains, Allah remains independent. 